Let's get uh, Bibles passed out. If you didn't bring a Bible, just put your hand up. Guys in the back will bring one to you. Those of you that have your Bibles, two places this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and Romans chapter 12. 2 Timothy 1, Romans 12. So our Bibles are open. 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we'll be. Let's pray. Father. Maker of of heaven, maker of earth, sovereign over every kingdom that that is led by man. You are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You are the great I am who always was and always will be. You are the Alpha and the Omega and all things point to Jesus. Father, uh, we just come expectant. Uh, to hear from you, and we ask that you open our ears, that you take the scales off our eyes, that we might see ourselves clearly for a change, and Lord, that we might see you clearly as well. We want to know your heart, we want to know your ways, we want to know your mind, and I pray, Lord, that as we open up your word, you would be equipping us to represent you, to be your ambassadors in a world that's growing darker by the day. Lord, I pray that our lights would shine brightly. Lord, open this word to us. Pierce our hearts. Penetrate our pride. And conform us to the image of your Son. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, whom we love, even though we haven't seen And all God's people said, amen, amen. It's really an appropriate morning with the baby dedication to be beginning a study in 2 Timothy. And you'll see why as we go along here. A number of years ago, we had uh, a rabbit. Like, you know, we buy rabbits, pets for the kids. And we had this rabbit and we named it Timothy. And of course, like rabbits do, they come and they go and our rabbit died. We got another rabbit. And of course, my suggestion for a new name was 2 Timothy. Uh, the fa- family didn't like that name. It got rejected. Don't know why I share that story, but there you have it. Just it's one of those connections you make in your mind. It's just when I read 2 Timothy, I think about that, that situation. But nonetheless, we're in 2 Timothy. Uh, it's the second of two personal letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young ministry protege named Timothy. Timothy and he met when he was uh, when Timothy was a young man, probably in his teens, now some years have passed. Uh, they have been walking together, serving together for I think about seventeen years, if my math is correct. This letter written in sixty seven A.D. approximately. It is one of uh, what we call the pastoral epistles, and remember, an epistle simply is a fancy word for a letter. That's all an epistle is. It's a letter. And so this is one of three. He wrote two to Timothy that we have uh, copies of that we have here in our Bibles and one to Titus that we'll study next. What's fascinating about this letter, and, and I think as we read it, you'll find it to be a little different than 1 Timothy, which we just finished studying. 1 Timothy was really meant for Timothy uh, to help him in his ministry to get a grip on the church he was pastoring that was having some struggles, a lot of exhortation, a lot of 
getting Timothy to dig in his heels, get things straightened out. This letter has a whole different tone, and there's a reason. And what you have to remember, as you read the Bible, God's word was not written in a vacuum, meaning that it wasn't written by uh, men that were holed away in some monastery somewhere in the mountains and had no connection with real life or the life outside of the walls that they were in. That's not how the Bible was written. The Bible's written in context. It's in the context of lives that are being lived and challenges being faced. Second Timothy happens to be the last letter we have from the Apostle Paul. It was written while he was in a Roman prison, basically on death row. So these are the last words we have of the Apostle Paul before he died. This is, in some sense, his last will and testament. And so you'll see it's a very emotional letter, a very personal letter written to Timothy, but written for all of our encouragement. He writes it, again, as I said, from Rome, uh, from a prison. Paul was familiar with prison, wasn't he? I mean, Paul had been in prison four times, I believe. He was in prison in Rome previously. He was in prison in Philippi. If you remember the story of the Philippian jailer that gets saved as they sing and praise the Lord while their hands and feet are in stocks. And, uh, and he'd been in prison in Jerusalem. And now this imprisonment in Rome is different. When he was in prison in Rome before, he was able to have visitors, people coming and going, and he was able to teach. And it was more like house arrest. He's in a prison called the Mamertine Prison in Rome. And it's more like a dungeon. Now, the prison system there was not like the prison system here. If you had a need, they didn't feed you. You had to have friends, people that you knew would come and support you. They'd come and bring you food or bring you things you needed. And this prison wasn't a long-term holding facility. If you were in the Mamertine prison, it's because you were going to die soon. When uh, Emperor Nero is the emperor at this time, you guys know he was a lunatic. He uh, set fire to Rome and fiddled as it burned and then blamed the Christians. That was in 64 AD. So it was probably during that time there was an elevated persecution of the Christians. And Paul probably was accused of sedition or treason or, or something like that. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is he's landed back in the Roman prison. And that's where history tells us uh, he will be executed. Also in that prison at one point was uh, the apostle Peter. Also in that same Roman prison. So that's a little bit of the background. Paul is writing this. I titled the whole series in Second Timothy, Keep the Fire Burning. Keep the Fire Burning. What is Paul concerned with? As he knows, he's moving from this life into the next. He's concerned and he's taking the time to just reinforce Timothy, to assure him of what he's believed and the truth of it. And he's also writing because he wants to encourage Timothy to come and visit him. He wants to see him. So we'll see all of these things as we go through. You'll see why we say it's written from prison. You'll see his references to that. It's a letter about enduring It's a letter about suffering, and it's a letter about not being ashamed of the gospel. So, with all of that said, we're just going to read down to uh, to verse 7, excuse me, this morning. So only a small chunk to bite off, but I believe that as we we begin to study this letter, uh, as I've been studying it the last couple of weeks, uh, I'm excited to see how the Lord uses it in the life of our congregation. So, 2 Timothy chapter 1 begins, are you ready, with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ 
by the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. So they signed their letters at the beginning, not the end. They wrote on parchments or scrolls, and these things would be rolled up. And if you wanted to find out who wrote, you know, you're going through the mail, you got bills, 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 and you get this scroll, and you go, I wonder who that's from. And, and you, you, you'd have to unroll it all the way to the end to find the name if they wrote their letters like we do. But they signed them at the beginning. And so I can just imagine Timothy getting, you know, again, going through the mail, and here he gets this scroll, and he says, I recognize that. And he, and he opens it up, and it says, Paul. Ah, his heart must have melted because these two had a, a loving father-son relationship. And so he sees it's from Paul. And how does Paul define himself here? He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And I think he says that with his chin up. Because right now he's a prisoner of Rome. But he signs his letter, not a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He signs his letter, Timothy, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I think he he says that because he's telling Timothy, I don't want you to be ashamed. I don't want you to be ashamed of being connected to me, himself, Paul, or of being connected to Jesus Christ. And, you know, we, we struggle with that. You struggle with that. You know, how many times have you been in a place where there's been an opportunity to share your faith, an opportunity to speak up for something that's truth or right, and you've sort of been intimidated by the people that were around you, and you didn't want them to know you were a Christian? Because maybe it affect the way that they thought about you. So we struggle with that, even and especially in our culture today. And Paul says, hey, chin up, I'm an apostle, or I'm, been, I'm one who has been sent by Jesus Christ. Or, excuse me, sent, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Another thing I think that is interesting about this is at the end of his life, days, weeks, I don't know how long, this is what he looks back on. He says, you know, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He could have defined himself. I mean, how would you define yourself if you were writing a letter at the end of your life? What is it that would define you? What is it that would be written on your tombstone? What is it that would be, you'd want to be written in your obituary? I think what Paul is recognizing here, and what you'll see through the whole letter, is he's trying to make Timothy understand and convince Timothy, not not that Timothy needs convincing, but needs encouragement, that Timothy, we're part of something bigger than us. See, what I am, an apostle, I'm one who's gone out uh, in Jesus' name by the will of God. Now, there's a lot of things we do by our own will. Maybe you've have a five-year plan or a ten-year plan, or maybe from the time you were young, you knew you wanted to be this or you knew you wanted to be that, and your whole life has been heading in this direction. And then God intervenes. See, was Paul an apostle by his own will? Those of you that know the Bible say, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. He was not an apostle by his own will. Paul was a successful young rabbi student. He studied under the best rabbis, the best educational facilities. He had the course of his life charted out, and he was heading there as fast as he could. He was was well-known by all of his peers. He was an A student. He was the top of the class. And when people uttered his name, it was like, ooh, Paul, wow, he's something else. And then what happened to him? Jesus Christ happened to him and changed his direction completely. Read it in Acts chapter 9 brings Paul to the place where he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? You see, so often we spend our lives when, Lord, this is what I want to do. Now help me with my plan. Look, trust me, I'm, I'm, I, can speak, there's not, I can speak from experience on this one. 
Because sitting here, never in my plan. Never in my plan. And matter of fact, I told God, I made a deal with God. I told God, God, I'll teach Bible studies. You see, I was working in the horse industry. You know that. And I started teaching Bible studies. And, and I sort of had this sense of what was happening. I said, okay, Lord, I don't mind teaching Bible studies, still working my job because I love my job. And I'll do that as long as you want. Just don't make me be a pastor. I know what Paul means when he says, apostle by the will of God. I'm a pastor not by my will, but by the will of God. Now, now, let me make sure we understand. I don't regret it. I don't regret it at all. I don't think I could do anything else. You know, Paul would say, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. I mean, it'd be death to me if I couldn't do what I do. Being here, teaching God's word, it's like, it's life-giving for me personally, just the way God wired me and the way he's gifted me personally. But there, is there something in your life that you would say, you know, this is, not, this is not something that I would have thunk of on my own. This is not something that came out of my dreams or not something that maybe the world admires. But you say, I am this by the will of God. I, I drive a, a, a van to pick up kids by the will of God. I, I change diapers in the nursery by the will of God. I set up chairs by the will of God. Is there anything that you can say in your life It's not because you wanted it, but because you realize that you were part of something bigger. And look, there's days, you know, I'm human. I have those days where I, I'm like the, the uh, Israelites coming out of Egypt. I look back on what used to be and go, oh, the days when I was or the days that used to be. And you know what the Lord reminds me of? Steve, it's not about you. It has nothing to do with your will or your dreams or your plans because you're part of something bigger. When we get to be involved in the kingdom of God, we get to be part of something bigger, something that's eternal, something that's lasting. And that's what I want to be a part of. And on my deathbed, I want to hear, as Ron spoke about yesterday at our men's breakfast, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, Paul's going to say, I finished the race. I kept the faith. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Now, don't think that that's just a, you know, I had to think of something to finish the sentence. There's a very important reason that Paul is thinking about the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Why? Because all he's got is a promise of death from the Romans. And now he thinks about, yeah, the Romans can kill my body, but they can't touch my soul. And I have a promise of death from them, but I got a promise of life that's hidden away in Christ Jesus and kept safe there. And no one can touch it. Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill the body, but fear him who can, can condemn the body and the soul to hell. The, the body, this thing is just fading. And, but Paul says, I recognize that I have a promise of life. And, and that's what he was all about, not just having it, but telling others about it. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're ambassadors to beg people to be reconciled to God so they too can know the promise of life that's not found in my job, it's not found in my recreation, it's not found in my possessions. The promise of life is found in Christ Jesus, is it not? So this is what's on a man's mind when he's 
on death row. By the way, he doesn't say the promise of God opening the prison doors like he did in Philippi. God had sprung him out of jail, didn't he? He doesn't say, I'm I'm holding on to the promise that God's going to spring me again. He just knew. He knew. This is the end of the road for me. And so he writes and he says, verse 2, to Timothy, a beloved son. They had a, a long-standing ministry relationship. They shared some things. They ministered together. They traveled together. They labored together. They cried together. I pray for the men and for the, the women of our church, the older folks. Your kids are grown. They're out of the house. They've got families. They've moved away. Find a Timothy. Find a Timothy. Find, don't avoid the youth. Don't avoid the young men. Don't avoid... Being, well, I don't understand them. All they do is have their faces in their phones and, you know, their faces. Get to know them. Open yourself up to relationships so that they weren't biologically related, Timothy and Paul. But they were spiritually related. And now Paul says to this man who now is in his, you know, mid to late 30s. Says to a beloved son. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. A lot of times, Paul starts his letters with grace and peace, but Timothy's a pastor. God, uh, Paul knows he needs mercy, too. I'll say amen to that. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers, night and day. So he begins to, you know, he's in, He's in a dungeon. There's a, Mamertine prison is a two-level. There's an upper level and a lower level. It's filled with human feces. There's probably bloodstains because if they didn't execute you somewhere else, they just executed you right there in the cell that you were in. And that's where he is. And, and you, don't see, you don't hear a word of bitterness out of the Apostle Paul. Do you know why? Because Paul died a long time ago. Paul had already dealt with this in his life. He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. He was Christ the whole time. And he'd already dealt with these things. So he doesn't, he's not bitter, he's not angry, he's not depressed, not that we can get any sense of from this letter. He starts his letter with, I thank God. That's a lesson, isn't it? From the dungeon. That's a great way. Now he'll ask for some things, he has some needs that that need to be met, but he always starts with thanksgiving. Is that the way you start when you get up in the morning? Is that the way you begin your day with, oh, you know, there's so many problems and so many issues and so many things going on in life. And, and our minds, where do our minds want to gravitate? Our minds want to gravitate to all that's going wrong and all the problems and all the things that, that are harmful or hurtful. And we miss the things that are good. And there are good things in your life. So Paul says, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience. No regrets, no remorse. Now, you know, not thinking, oh, what could my life have been if I hadn't followed Jesus? Oh, how things could have been better for me. None of that. So I serve God with a pure conscience. No mixed motives, no ulterior motives. Just like my those that had come before him did. And he says, as without ceasing, why, why is he thanking God? As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. So he's praying. You know, when you're in prison, you've got a lot of time. 
time to think, time to remember, time to pray, and time to write. And so he says, I, I pray without ceasing. Now, now, this without ceasing, this doesn't mean that all day long he's praying every minute. It's like the word is also used of having a cough. And a lot of us have been sick over the winter. We've had coughs. And you know that, you know, you cough a little bit and then it, and then it goes away. And then you cough again later on. So it's sort of a persistent prayer life. And we tend to think that there's this, okay, church, that's the, that's the sacred and, and work and home, that's the secular. So when I come to church, that's when I pray. But then when I go home, that's when I do everything else. When I go to work, that's when I do that. And, and Paul would have you to understand, and, and I hope many of you have, that our relationship with God is like having a friend with you all the time. And, and, I, and sort of, I think there's a desire in our hearts for that. And I think that's why this immediate instant communication is so popular. Because we're always needing to be connected to somebody. It's like we have this desire internally to always be wired in. And a number of years ago, God taught me that in an airport. Just that I always have a friend with me. And I can talk to him anytime I want, all day long. We can talk about this. We can talk about that. I can talk to him about the weather. I can ask him to change it. <laughs> Calm the wind. Whatever. We just, we just talk. Whatever my... I take your thoughts and you turn them into prayers. And so that's when Paul talks about praying without ceasing. Every time he thinks about Timothy, he prays for him. And it might be in the morning, uh, later in the evening, uh, two or three times. He's got all the churches to pray for. And part of that, he's praying persistently, night and day. And, and is that, would that explain your prayer life? Your prayer life is not just the time when you're on your knees in your bedroom or, or, or in the prayer closet. It's in the car. It's as you're walking in the mall. It's as you're sitting at work at your computer. It's as you're talking to somebody. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Like you're talking to, you're having this conversation, but you're having this one too. I'm hearing someone. I'm going, oh, Lord, they need you. Oh, Lord, I, I can't help that. I don't know what to do with that. That scares me, frankly, but I don't know. You know, Lord, they need you. And so I'm praying, Lord, I'll just grab hold of this person's heart. And so this praying just without ceasing, it's all the time. Night and day. Verse 4, he says, Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Sitting in a dungeon talking about being filled with joy. That's crazy. What would fill him with joy? Just to see Timothy. And he's thinking about him. I desire to see you. Again, Paul knowing that he had very little time. Paul knowing the relationship he shared with Timothy uh, and, and being mindful of your tears, we don't know what Timothy's tears were all about, but we know tears were shed. It could have been the last time they said goodbye. There's a beautiful scene in the book of Acts where Paul departs from uh, the, el- the elders of the Ephesian church, and they're all kneeling and praying and weeping. And these people had relationships. They really did share life together. They shared ministry together. They struggled together. They prayed for one another. And so it may be that those are the tears that... Paul is remembering about Timothy. It could be tears that Paul knows about from hearing Timothy hearing that Paul was imprisoned like he was. Timothy was a timid, kind of frail guy. Stomach problems, ulcer, who knows what he had. But it may be that when Timothy imagined his, his father in the faith, Paul, being in that nasty prison, it may have brought him to tears. We don't know. 
but I want you to come that I may be filled with joy. So that's one of the reasons for this letter, so that Timothy will be encouraged to come and visit with Paul. And here's why he's thankful. Verse 5. Because that, well, what we just read was sort of a parenthesis. So you could read it you know, from verse 3. I thank God, verse 5, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Now this is a great passage. The genuine faith that is in you which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. See, I told you it's a very personal letter, isn't it? Even naming Timothy's mother and his grandmother because he's, he's connecting himself and he's connecting Timothy to the things that Timothy had believed. Timothy, these are the things your mom believed. These are the things your grandmother believed, and I'm convinced you believe them too. Even if right now, Timothy, you're struggling or you're doubting, I believe that inside you know that these things are true. So what's fascinating about this is this is Timothy's testimony. Sometimes we get this impression that the only testimony is, you know, I I grew up in an abusive home. I got into drugs. I became a dealer. I got pregnant out of wedlock. I ended up in prison, and then Jesus Christ found me. And, like, that's the only valuable testimony. Timothy had a testimony. He said, I grew up in a Christian home. I avoided some things that other people had to go through because my parents, my mom, read the scriptures to me when I was a kid. You'll read it in First and Second Timothy chapter 3. We'll find out that his mom taught him how to read by using the scriptures. His first reading lessons were from the book of Genesis, the story of Noah, or, or wherever it might have been. This is how he learned to read. This, this is the way it used to be in America, the New England Primer. Kids used to learn to read their first reading textbook was the Bible in this country. Harvard, Yale, these schools were all started as seminaries, places for Christian education. This is from where we have fallen. And I think God's word to all of these institutions, as well as to Timothy, is remember that faith. It dwelt in you. So his testimony is, hey, I, I grew up in not just a home where we went to church Sunday. But what kind of faith did Timothy, did Timothy get from his... What kind of faith was dwelling in his grandmother and his mother? Genuine faith. Circle that. Circle that. Because that means unhypocritical. Unhypocritical. You want to ruin your kids forever following the Lord? Then live hypocritically at home. Then come to church, put on the face, do the thing, have the Bible, and then go home and forget it all. Live completely differently, and you'll assure that your kids are run far from the church and from Christ. And if that's been you, if church is just something you do, then you can change today. You can start fresh today. Recognizing that Paul says, Timothy, I know what's in you. It's genuine faith. And I saw it in your mom. And I saw his grandmother. We don't know when she got saved. We don't know when she gave her heart to Christ. We don't know when she accepted that gift. Could have been at Pentecost. Could have been the first trip Paul took, that Paul led her to know Christ and and to understand the gospel. But she lived it, and then she passed the torch. She kept the fire burning by passing it on to her daughter. And she kept the fire burning by passing it on to her son. The greatest thing you can do is, number one, live it out yourself. You know, I love, you know, my kids... They're going, to have this, they're going to have Timothy's rotten testimony. Poor kid, grew up in the church, grew up with Christian parents. What a terrible way to grow up, huh? 
never got to try drugs, never got to do these things. And man, I wish I had that testimony. Uh, could have avoided a lot of stuff. But no, and I say this to the young folks in here, to the, to the teenagers, Timothy had to accept it himself. Timothy couldn't just inherit it from his mom, from his grandmother. He had to receive it for himself. He had to own it too. Because a lot of kids growing up in, in Christian homes and have rejected what they learned from their mother and their grandmother, right? So it doesn't guarantee, just because you've grown up in a Christian home doesn't guarantee that you become a Christian. But it's sure a good start if the family is living it out genuinely within the walls of their home. That is the first church is in your home. Now, there is something about Timothy's testimony that maybe some of you can relate to. What's missing from his testimony? His dad. We don't know a whole lot about Timothy's dad. We know from Acts chapter 16 that he was, his mom was a believer, but he was a Greek or a heathen. He was not a believer. We don't know if he then died uh, sometime during Timothy's childhood. We just don't know those things. But we do know that he's absent from this list. Just as I know looking around here, there are some of you women that are carrying the torch for Christ in your home. And there are some of you grandparents that are carrying. Maybe you were the first Christians in, in your family. And you're the ones carrying the torch. If you're lucky, your spouse allows it if you're unlucky he or she may be opposed to it and that's tough isn't it it's tough to try to stand for something uh, when when you don't have that support or that encouragement but uh we don't know but what we do know is that timothy's mom raised him up in the lord and it took not only that but a faithful man named paul became a spiritual father to Timothy. And that's why I'm encouraging the men especially, the women as well, older women, you know, take care of the younger women. Older men, listen guys, pray for a Timothy in your life. And I'd say, it's hard to find Timothys in this day and age. I'm, you know, I have a love for young men, 20-somethings, older teens, man, but so few are interested in the gospel. There's so many distractions. There's so many things to do. There's so many things to pursue. Just to find one young man who's serious about the things of God. Oh, it's like a gem. It's like a diamond in the rough. You just want to grab those things. You want to grab those young men, those young women, and we want to cultivate that. We want to encourage that. We want to pour into that. Because they are the ones that keep the fire burning after we're gone. And in their generation. It was first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded, Timothy, that it's in you also. Now verse 6, he says, Therefore, because this is true, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Timothy, you've got this genuine faith. The Lord dwells in you. And he's given you a gift. Just like he's given each one of you. The problem is, Timothy, you're not using it. You're sitting on it. It's gotten cold. And so what does Paul do? He tells him, stir up, or, or literally, if you look at it in the, in the Greek language, a better way to translate that, would, translate that would be rekindle. 
Now, we heat with wood at our house. We got a, a wood stove, and I pack it at night, and we turn it down so it lasts through the night. But then by the time we get up in the morning, it's just embers, and it's gotten cold. And so I gather all the embers up together, put some fresh fuel on it, and crank up the air to let it flow, and all of a sudden, whoom, uh, it, it's, it burns into a blaze again. We marked Romans 12, didn't we? Let's go there. Let's go there. Are you all still with me? Yes. Amen. Romans 12. Uh, you see, this is going to be a phenomenal study. I, I'm so excited uh, how the Lord is going to challenge us. Romans 12. I've got to get there myself. Look down at verse, uh, let's see, verse 4. Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, For as we have many members in one body, just like I have arms and legs and fingers and toes and ears and eyes and a nose, many members, many parts in, in a body, all the members do not have the same function. That's clear. So we being many are one body in Christ. It's the same thing in the church. Look how many, there's, you know, 250 of us in here, 300, I don't know how many are in here, but each of us has a different gifts, or, or, and they, they differ not just in what they are, but in how they work in our lives. Each of us. Not one of you is without a gift. The Bible says that he has given to each one, to each one, for the building up of the body. So here's what he says. As many members, all, all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. I mean, our gifts differ based on the grace that God gave us, based on what he did in your life. Paul, he called to be an apostle. Someone else he calls to be an evangelist. Someone else he calls to be a helper. Someone else he calls into administration. Someone else he calls to give liberally. But the important thing about your gift, folks, is that you use it. Let's read on. Having then gifts, verse 6, differing, According to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. One person has a lot of faith. Another person has a little faith. Whatever it is that you have, whatever faith it is that you have, then use it according to that amount of faith. If God gives you the faith to do this, then do it. And, and don't judge one another based on that. If God gives you prophecy, then use it. Or ministry, literally service, then use it in ministering. He who teaches, use the gift in teaching, the grace. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Each one of you, you know, when, when our kids were little, I remember going and sitting in church and we sit in the, the traditional church and the plate would get passed. Well, neither of them had jobs. You know, they were young. And so we'd give them a little something to put in the plate. You ever done that? You give your kids something so they can put it in the box. or whatever. We'd give them something. And I was just imagining, I was reading this, I would give my son this dollar bill so he could then contribute it. What if I gave it to him? Let's say he's a seven, eight-year-old. What if I give him a dollar to put in the, and he puts it in his pocket and said, man, I'm saving that. That's for me. Like, wait, kid, put, give that up. Put that in the box. I just gave that to you so you could give it. And that's how we treat our gifts. God gives them to us, not so we can sit on them or stuff them in our pocket, but so we can use them. God, it's not even from you. God gives it to you so that you can be useful in the body of Christ. 
And if all of your Christian experience is just showing up here on Sunday morning and trying to get out the door as fast as you can to get out of here, and that's all that you are involved in with ministry and the rest of your life is according to your own will, then you're just missing something. You're just missing the joy of being used by God. And he's given you something. So, so as you go home, say, Lord, what is it that you've given me? How can I contribute? What thing have you done? Because what I'm telling you this morning is God would say to you, stir it up. Rekindle it. Use it. You're cheating us all if you don't use it. There's something lacking in this fellowship. Maybe God's given you the ability to do child care. Maybe he's given you the ability, you know, whatever it is that you've got. Maybe you're a prayer warrior. Pray. There's a, a gazillion things that, that God may call you to do. The important thing is that you figure out what it is and you use it. Amen? Is that true? Is that, am I stepping on toes this morning? Okay, back to 2 Timothy. Now the question is, why isn't Timothy using it? Like what happened that he's not using it? Well, here's what happened. Verse 7, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Why wasn't Timothy using his gift? The word fear is literally timidity or cowardice. Cowardice. What's a coward? The opposite of a hero, maybe. What's a coward? A coward maybe is someone that puts safety above duty. Listen again. A coward is someone that puts safety above duty. Maybe a coward is a person that puts self above others. And so because of the things that, you know, Timothy was just a timid guy. And others were coming against him. Others were challenging him. Others were opposing him. And he just backed up and said, okay, fine, I won't do it then. The minute he would get a negative comment or someone say, Timothy, I didn't really like your sermon. I, I think you stink, you know. Uh, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't be a preacher. Maybe I'm not called to this. Maybe, and we do that, don't we? And it, like, just we can unravel in a heartbeat. You know, as soon as someone makes a negative comment, we just, blah, 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 you know, we just fall apart. Oh, no, I don't, I don't even know if I'm a Christian now. That's not from God. That's God does not give us a spirit of cowardice. Gives you gifts, and he says, I want you, and it takes courage to use the gifts of God, doesn't it? Because we feel like failures. And then we have other people confirm it for us. And then we give up. And we sit in our gift, and it gets cold, and we figure, you know what? I'll just, I'll just not do it. I'll just not get involved. And that is not from God. What has God given us? He's not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power, dunamis, dynamic. He's given you a spirit of power. God's word has power. And he's given you a spirit that you are connected to something that's powerful. And to watch Paul, and we stood there at Caesarea uh, by the sea uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea where Paul would have addressed uh, Felix and the the Roman governors, and shared the gospel boldly. That's the spirit God has given you. Spirit of power. But power can be dangerous if it's by itself. It's not power just to show that you're powerful, but it's of power and of love. That's why we use our gifts. That's why the power is there. So we aren't cowardly and fail to show people the love 
with which God wants to love them. We take it too personally. We just want our own, we just want to have peace and I don't want to get involved. But God has given me a gift and he's given me the power to use it and it encourages people that God loves them. And it's about, see, what I say in the beginning, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. A a spirit of power and of love. And here's the whole thing, folks, of a sound mind or literally a safe mind, a mind that thinks clearly, a mind that has a worldview that begins with God and not myself. That's how you keep your mind safe. That's how you guard your mind, by looking at things through God's perspective, not through other people's perspective. You got to preach to yourself. You ever do that? You preach to yourself and you get to know the scriptures? I tell people that all the time. You got to preach God's word to yourself in your mind, and that keeps your mind safe. Because I'm constantly, somebody tells me something, I preach God's word over top of that, and that keeps me going. You better believe I've wanted to quit this. You better believe it. Don't even think that, uh, that I'm like Mr. Solid Guy. I, I understand Timothy. Believe me. I, I can crawl in a hole when someone tells me I've, I used to be, uh, and I'm a recovering people pleaser. And, and so when that's what happens when you're a people pleaser and, and people aren't pleased, then you give up. God keeps me going. I don't care what you think anymore. Because God's given me a sound mind. He's taught me how to think rightly and not be so influenced by what other people say. I know, I know that I know that God called me to this. Sometimes I doubt it, but even when I doubt it, I know it. I know it's true. So we're going we're gonna to close with that. Oh my goodness, the time got away from me. Wow. Phil's going to come up. and uh, So some big stuff to think about as we, as we forge ahead into 2 Timothy. I think the points were pretty clear, don't you? And I want to invite, as we, as we close with this final song, here's the thing that the, that the Lord's put on my heart as we're getting prepared for this. We've become too much about inviting people to exciting church. Oh, you know, come, I got an exciting church. We invite people to exciting church and they get excited. And because they're excited, then they invite their friends to come to exciting church. And everything becomes about exciting church. What I want to see is I want to see people into whose, li- into whose lives God has intervened. And into whose lives God has taken them in a different direction than they were going before. And that they're saying, you know, according to the will of God, my family and I are going to go plant a church here. Or or we're going to go start an orphanage there. And those are extreme things maybe, but they're not. The question is, who from among us is God going to raise up to go in a completely new direction? Well, my parents wanted me to go to college or do this or go to get this job or, you know, my dad wanted me to have a safe job with benefits and all that stuff. And then I became this and now I'm a pastor and he doesn't know what to do with that. Who is this kid, you know? He'll do, well, he'll get over. This will be just another phase in his life. And he's gone through all those phases and this is just a temporary phase. It's not a phase. It's a calling. And God's given you one too. He hasn't saved you so you could just sit in seats and, 
and, and, and, and rot until God comes to get you. He saved you and gifted you because he wants to use you. And if you're really open to his will and not yours, he'll do it, won't he? Amen? Amen. I can't wait to see what God does with the, this, this, this offering we give to him. Here we are, Lord. Use us. Amen?